This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. It's just not the same. We've been talking about this for the past couple of months. It's just not the same. Watching church on TV just isn't the same. It's being one of the most common statements I've heard over the past 13 months. I'm trying to unpack why that is. One of the things that we have to deal honestly with is the fact that the only authoritative teaching we have on the church, the Bible, recognizes just one legitimate manifestation of church, and that's a flesh and blood gathering. So when people say it's just not the same, my thought is, well, that's right. It's literally not the same, which is one reason why our live stream here was never going to be a permanent fixture. We have no desire to start an online church or even have the appearances of having an online church because it's a contradiction in terms. We also looked at this passage in Ephesians 5 uh, that probably doesn't get enough attention. We're commanded as Christians to be continually filled with the Spirit, continually filled with the Spirit. That's not something we do for ourselves or to ourselves. It's something that God does in us. But as is so often the case, God uses means to accomplish ends. And we have in that passage a number of activities that take place in the context of the gathered church that God uses to continually fill us with the Spirit. This gathering of the church, folks, is more profound than any of you probably realize. Your soul, your spiritual life is of far too much value to feed it a diet of pure digital content or to give it a diet of sporadic church attendance, which is one of the reasons, I think, why we read in Acts chapter 2 that uh, the church in Jerusalem, it says that every day they met together in the temple courts praising God, every day. You could not keep these Christians apart. They wanted to be together. Now, that wasn't always the case in the first century Mediterranean world. We have an example of a church that didn't do that, that was not gathering, And this particular church leader who writes the book of Hebrews addresses them and says this, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Now listen to this, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So this leader spots something that's off with this church. Some have stopped gathering, and he says, that's not good. Get back together. Get back together. Why? Well, you need to spur one another on toward loving good deeds. You need to encourage one another. This creates an opportunity, a venue for all of us to do one another's in the church, the one another's in the church. We're going to be preaching on that this summer, the one another's in the church. What is that? There's lots of them, but you can't do it in isolation. Additionally, I think this writer of Hebrews is making this exhortation to this church as as a way to, to get them across the finish line of the Christian faith. One of his overarching themes in the book is perseverance. Perseverance, making it to the end. And he sees this drop off in a commitment to the flesh and blood gathering as a detriment to getting across the finish line. And so he specifically targets this to say, you're gonna need, you need to be together. 
You need to be together. If you're going to make it across the finish line, you need to be together. So it's a wonderful opportunity, this, this, uh, our, the situation we found ourselves in, wonderful opportunity to go back to the scriptures and see what do they teach about these things? What do they teach about these things? I'm going to pray and then uh, we're going to dig into Revelation 20. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word to us, which is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. It lights the way. It gives us direction. It shows us things we wouldn't see otherwise. We're grateful for that. And now, Lord, as we come to this heavy text that you've provided for us, I pray that you would give us receptive ears and open minds um, to take in even those things that we might object to. We've asked this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we have reached in Revelation 20 probably the most controversial six verses in the whole book of Revelation. Uh, Because in this passage, we're discussing the millennium. The millennium. Now, the first few minutes of this are going to feel a little bit like a Sunday school class. A little bit like a Sunday school class. I I need you to at least be introduced to the way in which this text has been understood by your brothers and sisters in Christ throughout all of church history. We're not the first ones to come to the Bible. We're not the first ones to read it. We're not the first ones to interpret it. We interpret within the context of community, not just the ones we're around today, but within the context of a historical community. So how have Christians in the past understood these verses? Now, when, when we talk about millennium, you need to think the thousand-year reign of Christ, okay? When you think millennium, you've got to think the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, how that's understood is a little bit different from, from understanding to understanding, from camp to camp. But just have this in mind, the thousand-year reign of Christ, okay? Now, before I get into this, let me remind you of, of one of the very first verses in the book of Revelation. You need to keep this verse in mind, Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Okay, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, even the the difficult parts, even the parts that are hard to understand. You're blessed if you hear it and you take it to heart because the time is near. Let me read Revelation chapter 20. I'm gonna read the first 10 verses. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark in their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. 
Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sands on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, I'm going to do something a little different in talking through this. I'm going to trace for you the four ways in which this passage has been understood throughout the history of the church. Okay? Four different millennial views in the history of the church. So it's, it's good to have your Bibles open to Revelation 20 as I talk about these. Kind of go back and forth a little bit, see what's, what's happening in the text and how they're their take on it. These are, now, these are, these are Bible-believing Christians okay, who have held to these things. These are brothers and sisters in Christ who have held to these things over the history of the church. Let me explain. First is the post-millennial view, post-millennialism. Now, according to this view, the, the progress of the gospel and the growth of the church will gradually increase so that a larger and larger portion of the world's population will be Christians. And as a result, there will be significant Christian influences on society. Society will more and more function according to God's standards, and gradually a millennial age, millennial age, will occur on earth. Millennial age of peace and righteousness will occur on earth. This is this millennium, not necessarily a literal thousand years, but symbolic for a longer period of time. And then after this period, this period of peace and righteousness, Christ will return to earth post-millennialism. Millennium first, post-Christ comes after um, believers, unbelievers will be raised to life, believers to inhabit the new heavens and the new earth, unbelievers to face judgment and eternal punishment. Now, the, the primary characteristic of postmillennialism is that it is optimistic about the power of the gospel to change lives and bring about much good in the world. Belief in postmillennialism tends to increase in times when the church is experiencing great revival. Uh, when there's an absence of war and conflict and when it appears that progress is being made in overcoming evil and suffering in the world. Right? It's the post-millennial view. Now, I will say anecdotally, I don't have any data to back this up, but I think today post-millennialism is the minority view. It's the minority view. Another one is called amillennialism. Amillennialism teaches that Revelation 20, 1 to 6 in particular, describes the present church age. 
Amillennialists argue that the millennium began with the resurrection of Jesus and will last until the second coming. And during this time, deceased believers reign spiritually with Christ in heaven in the intermediate state, awaiting their physical resurrection and the renewal of all things. And Satan is bound in the sense of being bound at the cross while the gospel goes out to the nations. According to this position, the present church age will continue until the time of Christ's return. And when Christ does return, there'll be a resurrection of both believers and unbelievers. Believers will rise. They'll receive their resurrection bodies. They'll enjoy, enjoy eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. Unbelievers will rise to face judgment and eternal punishment. Now, the simplicity of the amillennial position makes it, I think, the easiest one to understand. Okay, the, the unfolding of events is really straightforward. We currently live in the church age. We'll continue to live in the church age until Jesus comes back at the end of time. And all the end time events happen at once. Jesus returns. You've got the resurrection of believers to eternal life, the resurrection of unbelievers to judgment, eternal punishment, the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. All of it happens at once. A third a take on this has been what's called the historic premillennial view. Historic premillennial view. Now, according to this view, the present church age will continue until, as it nears the end, a time of great tribulation, sufferings on the earth. The church is present on earth during that time. After that time of tribulation, at the end of the church age, Christ will return to establish a millennial kingdom. When he comes back, believers who have died will be raised from the dead and they'll reign with Christ on earth for 1,000 years. And during this time, Christ will be physically present on the earth in his resurrected body and will reign as king over the entire earth. The believers who have been raised from the dead and those who were on earth when Christ returns will receive their resurrection bodies and will reign on earth with Jesus. Now, according to, to, to the historic premillennial view, at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be released from the abyss and will join forces with many unbelievers who have been submitted to Christ's reign but have been inwardly seething in rebellion against him. Satan will gather these rebellious people for a battle against Christ and his people, but they'll be decisively defeated. Christ will then raise from the dead all unbelievers who have died throughout history and they will stand before him for final judgment. The fourth view is a different take on the premillennial view. That's dispensational premillennialism. Dispensational premillennialism. Now, dispensational premillennialism is the most recent view developing within the last 200 years. It's the view espoused by the Left Behind series, uh, by the Schofield Reference Bible. It's similar to historic premillennialism with one notable difference. It adds an additional return of Christ. So Jesus returns twice. Once before the uh, millennium to establish his earthly kingdom and reign with his people. And before that, Jesus returns secretively before the great tribulation to take the church to be with him in heaven while the great tribulation of evil and suffering occurs on earth for seven years. Okay? 
Confused? Yeah, okay. Well, I've got some encouraging words for you. Millennial views are not top drawer doctrines. They are not top drawer doctrines. These are not as important as what you believe about the inerrancy of Scripture or justification by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. Not as important. Okay? If you don't understand that, that's okay. There are plenty of other things to be more preoccupied with. Now, for the record, I believe the best options are historic premillennialism and amillennialism. I think those are the, the, the most, um, the, the views that have the best uh, evidence in their favor. But we can debate that another time. We can debate that another time. Okay, so by the time we get to Revelation 20, verse 10, um, we've got the punishment of the beast, the false prophet, and the devil, right? That has happened now. That has happened. And when we get to verse 11, we have the final judgment. The great white throne of judgment where God sits to assess human beings. Okay? The universe as we know it um, is over. We're at the end. The earth and the sky are fleeing away. All the dead human beings stand before God. He opens the books, including the book of life. Everyone is assessed according to whether his or her name is inscribed in that book. The sea, death, Hades give up their dead. Nothing in the end can stand against the Lord. Anyone whose name is not written in the book of life is thrown into the lake of fire. So this is the scene in Revelation 20, 11 through verse 15. Let me walk through these. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. God's throne represents his authority and rule. The word throne refers to God's rule more than 30 times in the book. The great white throne signifies God's place of judgment. Heaven and earth flee from God's presence. No place for them is found. This is the end. The end of history has arrived. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the book. So all the dead, whether powerful or poor, all the dead stand before God's throne to be assessed by him. Books are opened, including the book of life. The dead are judged by what is written in the book according to their works. Scripture repeatedly says that judgment will be according to works. I'll focus our attention on that shortly. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. So none of the powers of the world can withstand the voice of God or his authority. The sea here is not a a neutral entity, but it represents chaos and destruction, which, which explains its absence in the new creation. God's judgment here is impartial, it's fair, it's not arbitrary, it's not spiteful. 
It accords with what is right and true. In the end, after God has rendered his verdict, no one will question its veracity. Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. The first death is physical death. The second death is separation from God. Verse 15, anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Clear enough. If anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, they are thrown into the lake of fire. Matthew describes this as a fiery furnace, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. While the wicked will suffer eternal punishment, according to Matthew, the righteous will enjoy eternal life, vindicated before the great white throne of judgment. Now, I want to hone in on this repeated theme in these verses, and that's the theme of judgment according to deeds. Judgment according to deeds. Judgment day is coming. Think of it as commencement day. It's commencement day. And you're going to hear your name called. And God will know how to pronounce your name. <laughs> and you walk up to the stage. You walk across the stage. And you'll stand before his throne to receive your diploma, to receive your verdict. Jesus says in John 5 that some will go on to life and others will go on to condemnation. But everyone, everyone will stand before the judgment throne of God. Now, we often rail against Western individualism, and rightly so. There are some things we just don't grasp well in our Western culture that is so individualistic. But we should not forget something. We will stand before the judgment of God as individuals. Did you hear me? We will stand before the judgment of God as individuals. You. You. He will not say, the Danesburgs, please come forward. Lions Bible Church, come on down. All pastors, would you come? God will say, Brian Daniel Danesburg, come forward. And I'll get up. I'll walk across the stage. And I'll stand before the throne of God. And then your name will be called. Individually, we will stand before God. And my eternal destiny and yours, a hundred million, hundred thousand million years of joy or hundred thousand million years of misery will be determined by two books. The book of life or the Lamb's book of life. 
Revelation 21 verse 27 says, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will enter the holy city. This book records the millions, and we can hope for billions of names of those who belong to Jesus. Revelation 17, 8 says, these names were written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. God wrote your name there. He wrote your name there. He wrote my name there. These are God's chosen ones. In his book are written the names of those who've been declared righteous through faith alone. Listen, folks, heaven will not be filled with deserving people, but believing people. This is the Lamb's book of life. But there's a second book. Verse 12 says the books were opened. Then it says the dead were judged according to what they had done in the books. Now, wait a minute. We're judged according to what we've done? These books that are open will record all that the dead and the living have done. These these books that refer as a way of referring to God's unfailing memory of all things. Everything you and I have done. And we'll be judged according to what we've done in these books. The Bible teaches there will be a judgment according to works. And if you've been paying attention to the book of Revelation, I don't think this should surprise you. One of the emphatic contributions that Revelation makes to our understanding of God is God is judge. There will be a judgment according to works. The New Testament is very clear on this point. Jesus in Matthew 16 says, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Romans chapter 2, verse 6, God will repay each person according to what they have done. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. There's a judgment according to works. So what does that mean? What does it mean? Well, it doesn't mean we earn our salvation. You know why? That would contradict the rest of the New Testament. It would contradict, in fact, the whole concept of the Lamb's Book of Life. So judgment according to works is not the same thing as justification according to works. Judgment according to works is not the same thing as justification according to works. We are not declared righteous based on our works, but there is a judgment according to works. Somehow in Paul's mind, in John's mind, in Jesus' mind, these two things can hold together just fine. Justification by faith and judgment by works. They're not irreconcilable. So how do we make sense of this? In two ways, and I'm going to focus our attention on the second, but just very briefly, in two ways. Number one, we are justified by faith alone, but we are given heavenly rewards according to our works. I'm still processing this one. But the above statement from Jesus, 1 Corinthians 3, makes me think this could be a thing. Some sort of rewards based on works. But where I want to focus our attention on this, on the day of judgment, is this. Our works will be evidence confirming the genuineness of our faith. Our works will be evidence confirming the genuineness of our faith. Picture the scene. The the names are being read off. Brian Danesburg. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And then 
The books will be read as a public demonstration before God and the world that, that you and I do have our names written in the Lamb's book of life. That we did have genuine faith in Christ. God is a God of justice and he will want evidence. And he will want to see evidence before the world that in fact you did turn to Christ. You did trust Christ. You were changed by Christ. He'll want evidence. John Stott puts it this way. He says, such a public occasion on which a public verdict will be given and a public sentence passed will require public and verifiable evidence to support them. And the only public evidence available will be our works. What we have done and have been seen to do. The presence or absence of saving faith in our hearts will be disclosed by the presence or absence of good works of love in our lives. The apostles Paul and James both teach the same truth. That authentic saving faith invariably issues in good works. And if it doesn't, the faith is bogus. Now, the books that are open do not have to show more good works than bad works. It's not sort of some cosmic scale. Think of the thief on the cross. A life of rebellion. And in his last dying moments, he's converted and actually has a fairly sophisticated understanding of God's holiness and judgment and wrath and human sinfulness and the Messiah and Christ. And he makes this confession and he rebukes the other man. Now, when he's raised from the dead and the books are open, he he will not have a very long list of good deeds issuing forth from faith, but he will have evidence There will be evidence of a changed life that he did truly believe. The Africa Bible Commentary, of all places, puts it this way. Works are an index of the spiritual condition of a person's heart. The judgment is not a balancing of good works over bad works. Rather, works are seen as unmistakable evidence of the loyalty of the heart. They express belief or unbelief, faithfulness or unfaithfulness. The judgment will reveal whether or not people's loyalties have truly been with God and the Lamb or with God's enemies. Those who have their names in the Lamb's book of life will also have the records of righteous deeds and the opposite will also be true. You see, if, if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you have records to show in the books. Our works will be evidence confirming the genuineness of our faith. See, this is where our modern definition of faith has become one-dimensional. I think the Bible's take on faith is very nuanced. It's three-dimensional. Theologians have often described faith as having three parts. Knowledge. You know something. Assent. 
you agree with that something and say and believe this is true and trust. The actions that demonstrate the first two are real. See, real faith looks a certain way. Real faith looks a certain way. It acts a certain way. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Now today, people often want to rip out the knowledge part. Just have faith in faith. Have faith in faith. That's Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade. We've talked about that already. Right? Just have faith in faith. Just, just believe. And, and the belief does the rest. It's not belief in anything in particular. Just belief in belief. Faith in faith. Trust is where some of us who've grown up in the church tend to go off track. If true faith is true, then it must manifest itself in works. Real faith looks and acts a certain way. Real faith looks and acts a certain way. Try to illustrate this. Um, I have not been to Niagara Falls. No sympathy there, okay. All right, must not be that great a place to uh, see. We can skip that uh, trip. Um, I've read about it. Imagine standing at the edge of it. Those of you who've been there don't really need to imagine. You've been there? Imagine standing at the edge of it with its millions and millions of gallons of water pouring off the edge, something like 30 stories below and landing with a thunderous roar. Now imagine a guy comes out and he strings a a cable all the way across the falls. Okay? He's got a unicycle. Okay? Now you've got you've got Niagara Falls, a cable, and a unicycle. Okay? So there's a crowd. Everybody wants to see that. Niagara Falls, a cable, and a unicycle. Everybody wants to see that. And he hops on his unicycle and he drives across the falls and he comes back. No problem. Piece of cake. Crowd is just going crazy. Then he gets a big stick. He rides across, comes back. Amazing. They throw a sack of potatoes on, on his back. He, he hauls two by fours. He's hauling all this stuff all the way across and all the way back. And the people are going nuts. They're going absolutely nuts. And he turns to the crowd that's going crazy and says, now, how many of you think I can carry a person across the falls and back? And people say, oh, yeah, you can do it. You can do it. And he says, I need a volunteer. (laughs) And all the hands remain at their side. Is that faith? Is it faith if you don't believe it's true for you? Do you really have faith if you're not willing to get on the man's shoulders? 
Otherwise, it's just knowledge and assent to an idea. But there's no trust. You profess faith in his abilities, but you don't really trust if you don't get on the man's shoulders. Listen, there are millions of professing Christians around the world who probably aren't Christians. They may raise their hand, they may walk an aisle, but they do not treasure Christ. They've not been changed by Christ. Their faith is producing no fruit. You see, there is such a thing as bogus faith. There's such a thing as bogus faith. Jesus himself said, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Our works will be evidence confirming the genuineness of our faith. One chapter later, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Did I not teach Sunday school in your name? Did I not go to church in your name? Did I not take care of the poor in your name? Did I not give generously of my time and money in your name? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Our works will be evidence confirming the genuineness of our faith. Listen, what I'm trying to get you to think about is very simple but enormously important. What will be revealed about me when the books are opened? What will be revealed about me when the books are opened? Would you bow your heads? It's a great opportunity to do some business with Jesus. What does he want to hear you confess to him? What what sinful habit do you need to ask his forgiveness for and freedom from? Maybe you've got loose lips and you talk about people in ways you shouldn't be. Has your life become characterized by the sin of gossip or slander? Maybe it's a short fuse and more often than not, your temper ignites. Perhaps it's the sin of fear and worry that plagues you the most. Or possibly the sin of sexual immorality. Maybe it's a quote-unquote vanilla sin that is simply treating Jesus with indifference. What will be revealed about me when the books are opened? Listen, Christian, we are actually encouraged, exhorted to confess our sins to God because the promise of forgiveness is sure. Why is it sure? Because Jesus bore your sins on the cross. 
past, present, future. What is that worth to you? What is that worth to you? Forgiveness for that sinful habit you can't seem to shake is available because Jesus paid for it. And remember, he died not just to save you. He died to make you like him. To make you just like him. Ask him to work in you. Ask him to work in you to transform you into his image. Jesus, on judgment day, when we look you in the eyes and you open the books, what we want more than anything is that they reveal the genuineness of our faith. We know heaven will not be filled with deserving people, but believing people. And we want more than anything is that belief to be proved genuine. So Jesus, when you look into our lives, I pray you would find evidence of our obsession with you. Our obsession with you all over our lives. We pray these things for the honor of your name, Jesus. Amen.